Welcome to KUOW Speakers Forum. I'm your host, John O'Brien. In this extra episode, art is going to save us, right? Dancer and choreographer Bill T. Jones asks that question to open this talk. He says it's not a laugh line. His answer is sobering. In the iconoclastic world of modern dance, Bill T. Jones has long searched for answers to questions like, what is love? What is death? And what does art have to do with it? He explores those themes in this talk, analogy, form, finding meaning in confusing times. Jones is the artistic director, choreographer, and co-founder of the Bill T. Jones Arnie Zane Company. He gave this UW Graduate School Jesse and John Dan's lecture on January 30th at the University of Washington's Kane Hall. Please note, this recording contains unedited language of an adult nature. Hi, everybody. Thanks for coming out tonight. Not staying home for the State of the Union? What? Um, <laughs> I didn't either. Um, <laughs> I'm Yvette Moy, and I'm the director of the Office of Public Lectures here at the University of Washington, and our office is housed in the graduate school. Um, before we begin, I have a couple of housekeeping items that I need to go over with you. Um, the first is if would you mind checking your cell phones and sh turn them off or silence. Off is always better, don't you think? Like, I like off. Um, there's going to be no video or audio recording of this evening's lecture. Um, we do have our NPR affiliate, KUOW, here with us this evening, um, who will be making an official um, archival quality um, copy of tonight's lecture, and it will be made available through the UW Media Center. Um, and then finally, please refrain from taking photographs while our lecturer is on stage. Um, our guest here tonight, Emil Petrie, who's an emeritus faculty, will be our official photographer, and he'll take photographs for the first five minutes of tonight's talk, and then he will not take any more. Right, Emil? Okay. <laughs> um, I also want to take a, a couple minutes to acknowledge our special guests from New York Live Arts. They flew all the way out from New York City to be with us in the 206, and we really want to thank you all for being here. Um, I especially want to um, acknowledge Kyle Maud. Thank you so much for everything that you've done, as well as Hannah Emerson um, with New York Live Arts. Um, you guys have been instrumental in making sure that this event is running smoothly and flawlessly, and we really thank you so much for being a great partner. Um, before we begin, I also want to share a little history on the endowment um, that allows us to bring our speaker this evening. Um, it is sponsored through the generous Jesse and John Dan's endowment. It was created in 1961, um, and this endowment has allowed the University of Washington to host over 160 speakers and public intellectuals. John Dan's was an immigrant um, who arrived in Seattle with his family from Russia in 1881 when he was four years old. And as a youth, he grew up with a deep understanding of hardship and poverty. After working in a variety of positions, including as a newsboy, a cowhand, and a traveling merchant, Mr. Dance entered the motion picture business and became a very successful businessman. Always regarded as an independent and unorthodox thinker, John Dance was self-educated and read widely and liberally. He was fascinated by scientific developments and liberal religious movements especially humanism. In creating this endowment, his goal was to bring to the University of Washington distinguished men and women, quote, who have concerned themselves with the impact of science and philosophy on man's 
perception of a rational universe. I never get tired saying that, it's so interesting. Um, Mr. Danza's wife, Jessie, shared his vision and she augmented the endowment with additional gifts throughout her life. Please join me in expressing appreciation for this invaluable gift to the university and the citizens of our region. Tonight's dance speaker, Bill T. Jones, will be introduced by Elizabeth Cole Duffel. She's the Director of Artistic Engagement at the Meany Center for the Performing Arts. Thank you. Thank you, Yvette. Good evening and thank you for joining us. As Yvette stated, I'm Elizabeth Duffel from Meany Center for the Performing Arts. It is my great honor and privilege to be here with you tonight to introduce this evening's speaker, Bill T. Jones. Bill T. Jones is a multi-talented artist, choreographer, dancer, theater director, and writer. Throughout his career, he's received major honors, including the Human Rights Campaign's 2016 Visibility Award, the 2013 National Medal of Arts, and a 1994 MacArthur Genius Award. He was inducted into the American Academy of Arts and Sciences in 2009 and was named an irreplaceable dance treasure by the Dance Heritage Coalition in 2000. Mr. Jones attended the State University of New York at Binghamton, where he became interested in movement and dance. He became the co-founder of American Dance Asylum in 1973, and in 1982, he formed the Bill T. Jones Arnie Zane Company with his late partner, Arnie Zane. Today, Mr. Jones is the artistic director of New York Live Arts. His work engages with race, class, gender, history, and identity. And as Wyatt Mason from the New York Times recently wrote, like all great attempts at artistic expression, his art manages to model compassion for the spectator, to make us feel what it's like to be dealing with an intense feeling not our own, but one that becomes ours to deal with. Tonight, he will discuss the four-year creation process of the Analogy Trilogy, which will be presented by Meany Center for the Performing Arts, just across Red Square there, Thursday to Saturday night of this week. Um, and this is only the second time the full trilogy has been been presented back to back like this. So we're very pleased to be, uh, be presenting it. And yes, tickets are still available for all three nights. So please welcome Bill T. Jones. Thank you. I'm doubly flattered, triply flattered, because the most powerful man in the world is actually addressing the country tonight. <laughs> no. uh <-huh. laughs> I didn't mean it as a laugh line. Actually, it sort of makes me sick. But you chose to be here. Yeah, right, okay. So uh, art or talking about art is gonna save us, right? I don't believe it. That's not a laugh line either. Winning will save us. Voting will save us. Hey, Maya. You don't agree, huh? Okay, well, we'll talk later. 
Um, John Cage. I had just finished a uh, series of works that were going to prove for the last time that I was truly a choreographer and not a politician disguised as a choreographer. So I made a number of works that were, quote, pure music works. And um, those works, good works, but when they were over, I was left with that familiar sinking feeling, why make another one? What in the hell do you dance about now? So I thought I'd turn to the great um, saint of uh, modernism, whose name is John Cage. And how did he do it? What did he do? Supposedly, the story goes that there came a certain point, was it in the 40s, and he was having a kind of a breakdown. Uh, the breakdown was that he felt it was the Cold War and the work that he was making was not really uh, speaking to the world. He was uh, living as a heterosexual man with a wonderful woman. And then he met this uh, young, beautiful male dancer named Merce Cunningham, and they fell in love. And uh, his partner, this woman and he, suddenly something changed that was pretty drastic. And he thought, I don't know. And he started working with a teacher, an, Eng uh, an uh, Indian teacher, who um, pointed him toward the direction of Eastern mysticism, saying, you know, John, you don't have to have all the answers. You don't have to know everything. And he began to think about indeterminate action. Make a list of things. Make another list of things. And then toss the I Ching and decide what the order is going to be. You don't have to have compositional sense. As a matter of fact, John Cage was known to say, and he's often quoted, and excuse me if I quote him too much, um, that the more an artist gets out of his work, the more room there is for the audience to get in it. Oh, nice, huh? <laughs> Except if you have a huge ego and you're a performer by nature, and what's more, you're a seducer by nature, and you want to be loved, right? So you spend, people spend years understanding how to get you to love them and what they make. Market study. What do people like? Well, I decided to sort of mock him. You know how you mock people you love? He did, as you well know, a very famous work called Indeterminacy back in the 50s. And what it was is he wrote stories, and he read them, one-minute stories, with no transitions, one after another, boom, boom, about his mother, boom, about his uh, art, Boom, about his feelings about anarchy. Boom, about Zen Buddhism. Boom, 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 boom. And it was bewildering, mind-boggling. There was no transitions. So I thought, well, why don't I do that? Now, he could do that because he is uh, John Cage, <laughs> or he's a white man who can be neutral. He can just be about form. I said, well, you know, you know, the time's changed, you know, why don't you do that? So John Cage's stories were about his uh, spiritual beliefs, about 
uh, all sorts of things except sex, very little about race, religion, you know, he's an Irish Catholic, and so on. So I thought, why don't I write my own stories and then do chance procedure? And I did. And what's more, we took all of our choreography, this is something that we sort of borrowed from Merce Cunningham, choreography from 30 years, my wonderful collaborator, and our co-artistic director, Janet Wong, and I, and we began to slice them up arbitrarily, things that Arnie Zane and I would have been doing, things that came from the more lyrical aspects of what we were doing, and it could be no transitions. Drove the dancers crazy, <laughs> crazy. When Paul and Jennifer had a meltdown, you should talk, well, I'll talk to you about that, right? There's no transition, how do I go into this? You know, just go into it. And we really wrestled with that thing. And that was a series of works called Storytime. Should have cleared out all the concerns I had about success and failure. Supposedly, he was free of those things. Well, then, it ran its course. We go to a few places now doing it. I love doing it. But what was the next work supposed to be about? Why are you making anything? My dancer, Eling, Leeling has heard this so many times. Uh, Taiwanese, as opposed to Chinese dancer, as she re reminds me quite regularly. Um, she and I were talking in our uh, reviews in a, a, every 18 months about what are you doing, Bill, so on and so forth. And she voiced what a lot of them were voicing, because by this time I had already, um, I've been, I'd done two shows on Broadway, won two Tonys. I was, it was very starry, you know, Jay-Z, Beyonce, uh, all those, they produced one of the, the shows I did. And she said to me, frankly, where's your interest? You know, it's like when your family, you've been like sort of tipping around and one of your kids or somebody nails you and says, do you really love us? Or are you pretending? And, well, I said, my interest right now is in literature. And it was true. Nothing held me like a book in the hand written by somebody who had extreme command of language and form. And one such book was uh, W.G.Z. Bald's The Immigrant. And um, E-M-I-G-R-A-N-T. And this book had four parts. The third part was the one that really moved me. It was called uh, Ambrose Edelwart. Don't you love that name? You know, Ambrose Edelwart. And it's a story about a working class Jew, uh, German boy, born in about 1890, who um, is really precocious. He becomes a first-rate manservant. He lives all over the planet. And um, he finds his way to New York in 1911 and he is quickly employed by the, quote, richest Jewish family, the Solomons. Toxic brew, huh? Working class German, Jewish family, and they hire him to guard their eccentric son, Cosmo. Cosmo has an unlimited bank account. He could do whatever he wants to do. So, they gamble, and I won't try to tell you the whole story, except there was something intriguing about what he doesn't say. We're led to believe that they had a very special relationship, 
but the, but the author never names it. And what's more, it's only intimated by people talking about them. Around this time, I thought, ah, that's what I should be doing. But I remembered that I had done an oral history with uh, my companion, my husband, Bjorn Amelon's mother, who was in her 80s at that time, French-Jewish woman who had been working in internment camps, not a concentration camp, during the war. And I had recorded her stories that her son told me that when they grew up, they didn't hear these stories. Not unusual for people who survived the Holocaust, as I understand. But she was telling these stories all the time now. So I recorded them. So as I'm thinking, uh, I'm going to put her stories, which is roughly the time frame of Ambrose Edelbart, in together. And then I'm going to triangulate with my young dancers. Because I think, like a lot of us, we're concerned that um, one thing that the inter internet has done is taken away a sense of history. Everything is like so. There's no, you can have everything at the touch of a button. You can have access to everything. You don't have to know anything. So, okay, why don't I have them really know Dora's words by saying those words? But it was too soon for Ambrose. So we started with Dora. Let's listen to the beginning of Dora. Can you call what was happening when you came in the room now? What you heard? Yeah, I wonder. Because that's how I live. I'm always catching up with what I, my senses tell me. But I don't register it unless it's somehow bracketed and framed. That is where the process begins. Nick, as soon as I move these, Let's play that. Let's bring the lights down and play the beginning of Dora. You're going to hear my mother-in-law, who is now 97 and has just recently had a debilitating stroke. Dora is almost history now. She was very palpable when we made this work. Funny thing about time, isn't it? Just the beginning of Dora. La lune ne le sait pas et le soleil attend. Ici-bas, chacun en sa chacune, chacun doit en faire autant. La lune est là, la lune est là, la lune est là, mais le soleil ne le sait pas. Il faut la nuit, il faut la nuit, mais le soleil qui toujours lui. What does it mean again, Dora? You say that the sun has an appointment with the moon. But the moon is hiding itself and doesn't know that he is looking for her. But to meet her, you need night. You need night. And the sun, not knowing it, is blowing. So the night is not there and the moon isn't there either.
So, um, Nachstück is the name of that piece. I had done a solo show, soon to be almost 20 years ago, and I danced a whole string of Schubert Lieder. And there was one that I was going to get to, but never got around to, and it was this one. So, 10, 15 years later, pops back up again. And the list and the, the translation is something like when the mist spread over the mountain and the moon battles with the clouds, the old man takes his harp and walks toward the wood, quietly singing, Holy night, soon it will be done. Soon I shall sleep the long sleep which will free me from all grief. Then the green trees rustle. Sleep sweetly, good old man. And the swaying grasses whisper. We shall cover his resting place, and many a sweet bird calls. Let him rest in his grassy grave. The old man listens. The old man is silent. Death has inclined toward him. Morbid, romantic bullshit. Oh, sorry, a child is in the room. Well, I am a romantic. What is this thing about memory? the old man, the moon. I didn't know what the words were when I was so moved by it, but it stayed with me, and I knew that I wanted to open it up, and it was the door through which I, I, I stepped through. I thought it was going to be, has anyone seen uh, Visconti's uh, Death in Venice? Well, you know how he uses Mahler brilliantly in it to talk about decadence and all of that? Once again, we always turn to the Germans when we want to talk about that place of kind of a moral prurience and beauty all tied up together. 
And that's what I thought I was going to do with the Ambrose story. But then I found that it seemed to be something about sitting with this old Jewish woman who was talking to me about being 19 years old when the Germans marched into Belgium and her mother was dying of cancer. Oh, so drama, so much drama, but so real. And yet, my young dancers, I thought that they would benefit, one, I want them to be close to what I love. I love the Schubert. I want them not to be intimidated or feel that it's something dead white men art, but it's something alive. But I also wanted to find a way to be closer to Dora because I am getting old. And it's flattering to have gorgeous, they're right here, look at, look at them right now, they're beautiful. And I keep getting a fresh group of them. It is as if they're eternally young and I'm getting old. <laughs> it's nice. And when it's not, then what the hell are they? Are they my colleagues? What is it? What's the connection? We had thought form was the connection. We had thought that the style of dancing was the connection. There was once a time when you spent all this time learning Graham, or then you learned Cunningham, and those styles would connect you to your materials, which were the dancers. Well, what happened, something happened with the postmoderns. Um, we wanted it all. We were not terribly schooled, but we had a lot of ambition, and we had this thing called conceptualism. If the concept was strong, it didn't matter what the execution was. So we thought. The generation of the 40s would have thought, you guys are fooling yourself. What did Martha Graham say? The foot is either pointed or it's not. No two ways about it. But we, almost quoting modern uh, quantum physics, we think we can be both. And we don't think a line doesn't have to be finished. And an idea for a dance can be little more than just an idea for a dance. What was the idea as you were coming in? What was happening? That was just life happening, or me indulging. Or was it an opportunity for you to make a work in your head? That's what I was taught by postmodernism. We're having a conversation with your creation. Matter of fact, John Cage says creation is actually What's that term? Self-alteration. That's what he thought a good work of art was. A good work of art was an opportunity for the maker and for the audience to rearrange something. But back to Bilty Jones. I want to make something achingly beautiful. I want to talk about things like life and death, and I want to talk about aging, I want to talk about time. I want to talk about metaphor. And so what I tried to slyly do was, once I had this idea of what we would be, what it would feel like, then the question of, would be, what will it look like? I wanted you to see that section because the number of things were being laid out. You meet Dora, and Dora is almost an idea. Dora. We, every day, we're hoping that we have her longer, but Dora will not be with us for a long, 
Well, she's 97, but she has a cousin who's 10 years older. God knows, you know, who knows? All bets are off, but she's an old lady. Uh, there is Dora, and then there is my beautiful dancers, and then there is this ritual of these things that they're moving around. Someone said, one of the nicest things that particular critic has ever said about my work, and maybe one of the nicest things said about this work was, oh, the opening, they're like constructing memory. So I had said to our, our host, you know, that it would be very useful if the audience could come in and get a whiff of what it was like when I was listening to the music. Now it's yours. And then it, you would connect it to what you see. And not only do you connect it to what you see and hear, but now there's this language of these things moving. There is also the decor, which moves like this. It's actually a dance floor, which usually runs this way, but uh, Bjorn Amelon decided to make it go that way. And he said it should be a space that is a memory space. So analogy is a work that actually compares something. What's it comparing? Sometimes when I want to be uh, particularly uh, playful with writers, I say, oh, it's, uh, it, it's comparing a life well lived. Ah, okay, Dora's is a very good story. She's 19 year old, running through the streets of Antwerp. The dancers are beautiful. They're tell telling us the story. It's, I, if, if I'm allowed to say so, it's a charming piece. And it has, it packs something, but it also is, it tastes good. While making that work, my nephew, Lance Theodore Briggs, my sister's only son, and um, young actor, not actor, young dancer, model, um, who I'd known since he was in his mother's belly, he, um, and I have recommenced a conversation, and we think he's dying. If you know anything about me, my bio, death looms large, because I had a very public death of my companion, whose company, whose name the company still bears, it was Arnie Zane, who died in my arms after 17 years. So Lance, we think that he may be going that direction. Now, you've just made a, quote, charming, winning piece with a strong Jewish lady. Well, can you, without going to Europe, can you come home with your themes? What is a history? What is memory? What is love? What is death? And what does art have to do with it? So I started making an oral history when he was in the hospital. And I asked him questions I, like I asked Dora, such as, uh, where does your name come from? Your parents? Tell me about your relationship to this and that. He was a young dancer at the School of San Francisco Ballet when he was eight years old. He and I, he said that I was his hero, his Uncle Bill. It was two people that he really, I don't know if he, you know, he's capable of flattery, flattery. 
believe me, with his life, he, he learned about seduction. Uh, he said, you and Michael Jackson. Ah. <laughs> ah. So um, we do this oral history, and the question is, I know that there are people who said, well, you know, you're going to do this story about this heroic white lady, and now you're going to do a story about this dysfunctional life of a black man. Well, why not? Well, Black Lives Matter, Ferguson, Michael Brown, at risk, black people, violence, drugs. So shouldn't it, be also, shouldn't it also have an uplift? Don't I owe it to the time? Because there's now a kind of a code. Have you noticed how correct we've become now, right? You notice how many more brown people are selling Fords? How many more brown people are having holidays in Barbados? <laughs> trying to get it right now. No, it's not a white country. No, 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 that's not, that's, not, that's not true. No, it's not a white country. You see, in our advertising, now brown people, brown people, does it feel a little forced to you? You don't have to speak to me. It feels forced to me. We're all trying to be so correct, so good. Well, let's move the concerns of the culture away and get down to the business of art and association. Let's talk about metaphor. Let's talk about character. Can you do that independent of concern about the discourse around the black male body? My nephew wants to work with his uncle. Can we talk as two men, two black men, in a world where, quite frankly, I love you all being here, but let's do a little racial looking for a minute. This is my life. This is the truth of my life. It's been this way always. Does it make me crazy? Yeah. But I don't, so what? It's part of the job description, this kind of craziness, alienation, what have you. So we went into it, making a work about his um, exploitation at the hand of a pederast. Cocaine, drugs, money, being a sex worker. In the same spirit, Adora talking about being that brave 19-year-old, running and getting laudanum from her mother, working in a concentration, uh, in an internment camp. And then, so what are these pieces about? about what is a life well lived. When we meet him, he's almost dying in the hospital of um, complications from HIV AIDS. He didn't die. Aha, he didn't die and what's more, he tells me that he is going to make something out of his life and he is an artist. And what's that? At one point he and I have a discussion about, uh, he reminds me that once I said to him, uh, you're not an artist until you can uh, make something beautiful out of the ugliness of your life. 
made me cringe a little bit. I can imagine having said that to him years ago. Yeah, 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 yeah. But I said, you know what? I, I don't even think it has to be beautiful anymore. But you've got to make something out of something that has, that's expensive. And that's probably one of my biggest concerns right now with my field. I'm not quite sure that I care enough about what I go to see. I'm not quite sure the stakes are high enough. Now, you can't, it's almost like saying, you know, uh, the relationship you're having with your lover is not deep enough. That's from between you and your God and your lover. So when someone, the work that they make, I can't judge it. But I know from me, I oftentimes see things and I think, what if there was a caption on what I'm seeing? What if what I'm seeing was actually a description of something that was tangible, frightening, real? What if it really had real consequence for me or the artist making it? This is what I tried to do with Lance's work. The interesting thing about it, form is actually a safety net for me, or a, what do I want to call it, a, a, a seat belt. That floor is there in Lance as well. There's refrains of Schubert still there, although we're using my nephew's uh, rhythm and blues songs, because he sees himself as a songwriter. And through his drug addiction and his crazy life, he was still doing stage shows. He was a very beautiful man. He was modeling. He was doing all those things. But he, that crack pipe was um, something that Dora didn't have to worry about. So we soldiered on. And at a certain point in the piece, he and I have a real fight. It's the most inappropriate thing to air that to in a room full of strangers. Me saying to him, I think you did something you're ashamed of. Do you say that to someone you love? I did. Am I going to hell for it? Where is artist hell? <laughs> Mark him. Mark him, whoever said that. You're going to ask him to explain that. <laughs> OK, well, so Lance happens. It is uh, very, it's not to everyone's liking. It certainly doesn't taste as good as Dora does. But it has something else, and now I can smell it. Now let's get back to where you started, that novel. That novel which is, um, I think uh, uh, Carlo Villanueva uh, here, he says when in the piece uh, Ambrose, he says, he, he mentions the origami of the storytelling. The man, W.G. Zebal, is such a wonderful writer that he can take the past and fold it into the future and vice versa. He has researched things so that he, sometimes there's a little digression about something that you never thought was related to this thing, but suddenly it's there and you're, you're, you're really moved by the relationships in it, but you're now thinking about a flower. You're thinking about the taste of food. You're thinking about an atmospheric condition. You're thinking about history. All of that, and I realized I was very envious. So we set out to make the third section, which is called Analogy Ambrose, The Immigrant. And that idea has been one of the most rewarding things I've gone in pursuit of. 
I don't think I could have done that without the other parts that I did do before. Analogy, the comparison of things. A metaphor where one thing stands in for another thing. The origami of storytelling, where form, you can move things around, you can develop a very personal language that the audience can buy into, and then they become co-creators with you. That is where I think the strength of this work is for me in all the things I have made. So what about the politics? Tonight, um, we were going to show a bit of uh, Uncle Tom's Cabin. Uncle Tom's Cabin happened at a time when Jesse Helms was standing on the, in the legislature waving a book of Robert Maplethorpe's filthy photographs. And they were taking away from funding for people that were challenging family values. And they were, it was the, um, at that time, the liberalism was in the ascendancy. And we were all convinced that that is the way it's going to go. Bill Clinton played the saxophone on Saturday Night Live. We baby boomers, we were in charge now. And we knew we were right. We're fair-minded, generous, non-racist, non-sexist, non-homophobic, the way it's smooth, clear. <laughs> How'd we do with that? Well, that was Uncle Tom's Cabin, and Uncle Tom's Cabin was like a traveling show. My friends John Coles and Sage Coles, two real leaders in the community in Minneapolis, maybe you know of them. John Coles was the publisher of the um, Minneapolis Star, and they had retired, and they wanted to do something, and they were real good liberals. That guy, they actually dropped everything and went on the road with my dance company for two years, ending every night fully naked with all sorts of different people. I mean, you had to have been there. I don't remember the one here, but we did, we did perform, I'm looking around for somebody who, who we performed it here, right? Yes, and that's what I thought we would have started tonight with. But I wasn't sure if I could, like, ever go back there again. I was so sure. Come one, come all. Stand with me. Tell Jesse Helms to go to hell. We're not afraid of our bodies. We're not afraid of each other. We don't even know your, your breasts are hanging here, your balls are hanging here. It's beautiful. Fat people, skinny people, men, women. No transgender people, as I remember. I don't think it even crossed my mind at the time. And it worked. It worked. It was supposed to have answered every question I had about art and politics morality. It was supposed to have answered all the questions, but as we know, or as I'm learning, just when you think you've answered all the questions, gotcha! <laughs> so that's where we are now. And I have made this work that I just described to you, a work that is as much about aesthetics as it is about um, psychology 
And I ask myself, what happened to your politics? Well, you know who Justin Vivian Bond is? Um, she is a wonderful trans uh, woman who says, uh, glamour is resistance, she says. That's something that she can say with a wink, maybe not even with a wink. So is um, form resistance? Is uh, beauty resistance? Is the kind of puzzle state that a work of art places you in that's not clear to anyone? Is that a kind of resistance? I don't know. So that's what I came here tonight to talk to you about. How the work gets made, what I was trying to do, what I thought I was doing, and now it's done. And this engagement here is the first time each work will be seen in a sequence. Bjorn's decor, this cage he made, Nick's music, my company. Some of the people are no longer, from the original cast are no longer with us, but they are, they're here. And the question now remains, what next? Why make another piece? Other than the business of art, other than it's what we do, other than the habit of art, or maybe now I don't even have to know why. Can I be so comfortable in the world that I can be generous, like it was putting these words up and playing have I earned the trust of enough of you that I can just play? Years ago, uh, I was an affiliate artist. I don't know if you know that program. It's a very important program, decentralizing art throughout the US. And they, a community, for instance, my friends in Iowa, bought my time for eight weeks. And I came to their community, and I belonged to the community, and I did informances, informal performances or informative performances. And I was trained by a woman whose name was Shirley Potter, and she said something which was very important. I mean, maybe it made me a terrible ham, but she also said, you know, you got to allow yourself to be looked at. She said, do you ever notice you go to a party and there's a child over in the corner playing, and the child can stop the whole party, and they're looking at the child so absorbed in what they're doing? She said, you can learn something about that. So maybe, is that what the next part of this career is? Maybe it doesn't have to mean anything. Maybe it has to feel good to us, and then you will like it. Maybe we have to be totally disarmed and disarming, and that is its meaning, and that is the resistance, and that is its politics. Maybe I don't have to try anything, grow old in public, and be generous and apparent. Check back with me on that one. <laughs> Seaball finishes his book, 
and I'll finish with this. Memory often strikes me as a kind of dumbness. It makes one's head heavy and giddy, as if one were not looking back down the receding perspectives of time, but rather down on the earth from a great height, from one of those towers whose tops are lost to view in the clouds. Thank you very much. Thank you, thank you. Shall we, um, shall we chat a little bit? This gentleman's already getting to, coming to the microphone. And please, don't hold your uh, erudition to the last 10 minutes, because you'll never get, be brave, step up now. Hello, sir. Do you mind telling us who you are? My name is Sandy Voigt. Sammy Voigt? Sandy. Sandy. 40 years ago, I saw you in Binghamton doing a parking ramp dance. Oh my god, wow. Uh, yes, Lois Welk's brainchild, yes. the parking ramp dance. So I'm thinking now, you can go a little closer to the microphone, So Sandy. 40 years ago, mm -hmm. could you have, what was your vision that has been both the same now 40 years ago and what was lost? Mm. Well, you know, I, I have a story in the story time and I, someone asked me that question at uh, the Kennedy Center and I said, they asked me what has never changed. And I'm, sure, I'm not sure if you're asking that, but what has never changed? And I said, doubt. <laughs> that sense, that unease has never changed. Um, you know, an amazing thing happens when you're, when you're young. I mean, it's true, I mean, being a gay man, a lot of it, you want to be fabulous. You want to be attracting everybody. But there's something that happens to all of us as we get older. And you lose confidence in your ability to command space. Uh, something else happens, maybe a kind of humility, um, but there is something that young dancers have, young makers have. It gets really interesting when you've, it, it's all seemed like it's been like, an in, like you've been running down a hill, and then you start climbing. That's exhilarating, and then it gets really hard. That's all of your accomplishments. That's all of your reviews, everything on your back, and then you hit a plateau, and then it's, really upsetting when you look and you say, oh my God, there's another mountain coming. So that's where I'm at right now. What's not changed? That sense of climbing. You know, I don't want to stop. Estella, my mother, always said, keep on scratching. Keep on scratching, you know? Or she would say, keep on climbing, right? Thank you for that question. I will take it to bed with me tonight. <laughs> Wake up tomorrow. Hello. Hi, I'm James from Mini Center. Mm -hmm. um, as a dance major back in the early 90s, my first piece as of a what your, dance major ah, here. Um, uh -huh. My first piece to watch of yours was still here. Uh -huh. um, many people still seem to think that HIV AIDS is still not a problem. Is it what kind of problem? It's still not a problem. It's not a problem anymore. Many, I'm not saying all. Mm -hmm. Do you think you would ever bring that piece back to remind people that it's still relevant? Well, Here's my wiggle answer. First of all, <laughs> I never thought that piece was about AIDS. Okay. It was made in a time when people were really concerned about death. The woman who encouraged me to make it, Sonny Dupree, was a breast cancer activist. She thought I should make a piece about breast cancer. 
And I told her I didn't know anything about him. A man, she said, that's why you should make it. So when I started asking people to come into it, suddenly my own HIV positive status became forward and the time needed something to think through. So we tried some years back on the anniversary, we tried to do, tried to bring it back, but you know what? I don't know if it's a weakness in the work, but there was something, the time for that work had passed. Um, the bodies were no longer there, and quite frankly, the conversation had moved on, had gone deeper. So I don't think I can. I think it's, um, the impulse has got to be uh, in everything I do now. And are you choreographing? Well, I enable art to happen. I'm the payroll and purchaser for Mini Center. I see, so I see. I'm paying for your salary here. Thank you, thank you. Well, I would, I would, I have to turn it back. Sure. And say, you know, well, is there still need for it? And um, is there somebody who wants to answer the need? There's, much, there's nothing more I can do with that. Okay. But let's just see what happens as this life putters to its end. What other things are to be? I'm always looking for that thing. But thank you for that question. And I, somehow or other, I see it as a challenge, you know? Yeah, but, don't, but you heard me say, I never thought it was an AIDS work. Okay. It was too tidy that they made that work about AIDS. Mortality is what it was about. Nobody gets out of here alive. <laughs> thank you very much. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Hello, sir. Hi, my name is uh, Tyrone Brown, Hi, and Tyrone. Um, first of all, I just wanted to say thank you for tonight. Yeah, my pleasure. Also, um, I had the opportunity to see Fela on Broadway. Oh yeah. And I thought it was amazing, <laughs> one of the best productions I've ever seen. So well, I just you. thank you mm -hmm. for bringing that show to Broadway, and well, got a lot. Bless Stephen Hendel. Stephen and Dell. You know that what happens on Broadway? There was a producer behind everything you see. Yeah. You know, and he was the man that thought that Phaler should come to Broadway. So, but I thank you very much on his behalf. A lot of questions I have, but I'll just narrow it down to one. I'm curious, um, you talked about going to see uh, art or performances and not necessarily being, you didn't use the words impacted, but the questions that it brought up. But I'm curious what artists or things you've even seen recently that actually really spoke to you or that you um, mm. found compelling. Yeah, I see a lot. I see, I actually don't, I see a lot of film. I read a lot. And I do see performance. You know, I, you know what a weird thing I saw late, not weird at all. You know who Roseanne Spradlin is? You, you might be interested in her because I thought that I understood something about rigor in art. Um, but she is a choreographer, a woman who has been making work for a while and she made a work for three people. And this work um, was very, very curious. She, she introduced it and says, well, you know, it's my take on politics, but from formal, uh, in a formal way. I thought, hmm, I thought that's what I was doing. But it, these strange things happen to a man comes out crying, he and another man had this strange kind of fighting. Um, she told me later their bodies didn't matter because one was white, one was black. She said, no, no, it was, that wasn't the point for her. Then uh, go through permutations, a woman comes out with a ballet bar. She does hold it provocatively in one, but doesn't have a leg on that end. 
it looks like a giant erection. Then they put the legs on it. Well, what, what gets to the last part was excruciating. They had, I think, was it three bars? And they would, they would, the bars would be lifted one at a time and taken way upstage while somebody was actually sitting down here. And then it would be, someone might pose, and then it would all happen again. It was over, relentless, relentless. And I realized as I'm watching it, oh my God, oh, it's moving three inches every time across the whole stage. So every time they would go up and come back, I realized that it's inching, inching, inching. Is she really gonna go all the way across the stage? Oh my God, she is. I'm gonna scream, I'm gonna run out of here. But I didn't run out. And I realized, oh, I think I see the idea. And I got happy. Like you remember in the, in the black church, when, um, when you get happy in the church, and it was almost like a race, and I, oh, that's, she's really gonna do it. The 20th time, up and down, up and down. And I say it, I came out of it, I had a revelation. I thought I learned this back in cinema class back in the 70s. Mm -hmm. Art's not about my pleasure. <laughs> Art is about an idea. That's what she had the courage to do. And she, maybe, many people, probably half the room did not like it. And because we're in a kind of an avant-garde space, unlike the space it was premiered in, people left in droves where it was premiered. But people stuck it out. She has made, she dared do it. Now, I, am a, I was moved by that. Was it the work itself? There was something behind it, the intelligence and the commitment, rigorous investigation. That is, that is true. Yes, I saw the band's visit on Broadway. Very charming, very fragile, um, set in Israel, an Egyptian group comes through, um, sets everyone's world on fire, people fall in love, people have fights and all, all because of these outsiders coming and, and singing beautiful music. That was very charming. Yes, I saw um, Lady Bird and was very moved by it. Yes, I saw uh, The Hidden Thread. It wasn't the movie itself, but the acting was so profound. Yes. Um, yes, I have been reading um, some things lately that made me want to be a better person. Um, is that what you mean? Yes. I, I won't name any other names, but I have faith in art. If that's what your question is. Mm. I think it, it makes a difference for me and I couldn't live in a world without it. Thank yes. You. Hi. Hi, I'm Sharon Swyback. Hi Tyrone, I interviewed a long time ago about race. But hey, <laughs> um, I have a question. When you have a concept and an idea that you begin exploring, whether it came from literature, where have you, wherever it comes mm -hmm. from, once it's complete, do you feel a sense of resolve in healing from it or does it continue to simmer, or is it or does it explode? Or does it explode? Right. Or does it become those artists who now it's upon? Does mm. it become theirs? I'm just wondering mm -hmm. your process. Well, you know, it's always different, but um, you know, I'm, I have a real pathology. I mean, my own work. There is a thing that happens when a work is premiered, and I go home and for. 24 hours, or until the first thing is written about it, I'm in love. I lay, I can't sleep at night, I'm playing, oh, wasn't that sequence great? Didn't she look good doing that? Oh, that was so beautiful, you know? And I'm just loving it, and then, quickly, somebody has an opinion, 
and I have to, that opinion, if it's a negative opinion, it's huge. And there's a great many positive opinions, but that negative one. Now, isn't that horrible? Your baby, someone said your baby, oh, you know, that's, they're a little fat. <laughs> they're your fucking baby, you know? Like, but no, that happens, that happens. Now, once it's done, that's what the best thing I can do then is to get away from it and make another one. I don't trust myself with it. I want to try to improve it. I want to try to change it, you know? Does it ever become a stranger? It becomes a stranger? Yes, it does. It does. And that is where uh, art history comes in. And that is one of the cruel things about making time-based work. Um, did, the wor did the work change or did I change? Did the work change or did the world change? I can't control any of that. So you got to love it. Are you a choreographer? Uh-huh. Well, maybe you want to answer that question then. No, I want to. I saw a piece, uh, your original piece um, in 1988 in New York in a very small studio that um, I wish I remember. It was, your, it was anyways. Was it yeah, in Chicago? No, 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 in Manhattan. Uh -huh. um, and I remember walking away and feeling that um, it told a very deep story, which you don't always feel when you see work, and mm. that... Um, sitting here listening to you now so many years later, I was 18, now I'm 50, that, um, so it just, just, the process just thought to me is like, did that work so long ago for him still have the same meaning that it did the time I saw it? And, and then this my is what I wanted to get at tonight. Your take on it is as valid as mine. You have that work inside of you and I've forgotten it. You know? Let me answer my question, that was perfect. Yeah, thank, thank you, you, thank you. Ah, they're circling, right? Well, we're gonna bounce to this side. I'll come back, sir. Yes, yes, sir. Hello, um, my name is Santiago, and I'm gonna allude to what you said when you first came out about like, you come out and this is your reality, which basically means your reality is you're producing art for people that are, I'm guessing, that aren't from our culture. Mm. And um, Are you talking race? Yes, ethnicity. Yes, yes. And so what I was, that also led me to think that I don't quite know exactly where you come from, your background, mm -hmm. but I'm, I'm guessing it wasn't a silver spoon. No. So in a, with that in mind, how does it feel to, to come from that background and know that you're going all over the world mm -hmm. and people are waiting? Now, you don't know that, of course, when you're coming from it. Exactly, but, but I'm talking about now. Oh, yeah. You, mm -hmm. Now you go all over the world and people are waiting, you know, listening, mm -hmm. waiting on your every word, and you're treated like, you know, something like a, like a phoenix, a comet. How does it feel? How Unicorn? Do you, you see, yeah, that one too. Like, yeah. that's basically that it. That sort of slipped in there, hasn't it, lately? You yeah. notice that? Yeah. I don't think, uh, well, how does that feel, you know? Um, you know, I wish certain people who I people I come from, I wish they could feel it. And that's always a little bitter, that they know you're famous, they know you got this award from the president, you got that, you know that. Um, but, well, that's what he does. Yeah, he, that's what he does. You know, but, you know, I, they teach me in Black History Month. Oh yeah? You know, literally, nieces and nephews, coming home after seeing a poster, right? There's this guy, his name is John. Oh yeah, that's your cousin. You never told them about me? 
You never brought them to a performance? Well, man, that's what, they, that's what you do, you know. You know, don't push them because they say, you know, my brother once told me, you know, look, man, it's like noise to me. Can you, st you really want them to, to tell you what they really think? You know? So, that, I mean, let's, so those are the people I come from. Mm -hmm. There are some, you know, my nephew, that's why I work with my nephew, because yeah. he calls himself an artist. There's a, there's a handful, my sister Odessa Jones, an artist, but it's a huge group of people. Why so few artists? Is it authentically not black enough? Is that what it is? I mean, did I, are they putting up with my pretending for the white people? Yeah, you know what that is. You're just trying to get over with white people. You think that's what my whole life is? Man, that's, that hurts. But look, people came out tonight, you know? And they're not the same color as me, a lot of them, but you know what? Our hearts at least vibrate, and I think they maybe believe in things I believe in, mm -hmm. you know? You've got to make peace with that. You have to make peace with that. If not, you are sad. You're sad. You will be sad and very angry. Thank you for that, sir. Can we get a little uh, press the flesh here? <laughs> Thank you, sir. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, sir. Hey, I'm Ben Gooseman. Um, What's your name again? Ben Gooseman. Yeah. Good I style, Ben. Thank you. Uh, I was reading a book uh, by Meg Stewart from Brussels, and I thought I saw your name in the context of a series of Im improvisational works called Indiana? Crash Landing. In Vienna. Yeah, I was wondering. What did if, she say? Uh, it was actually by someone that was in the work themselves, mm. and they they saw something. You come into a uh, a scene that was totally not what you thought it was, mm -hmm. uh, and they thought it was grotesque and. Uh, kind of out of the blue, but yeah, I was I was mis I was out of place. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, but I was curious about how you engage in improvisation. Well, let's talk about it for a moment. It was called Crash Landing, and uh, it was supposedly a bunch of kick-ass improvisers. It's true; some people had no arms and legs, so they were doing moving them around and all. It was supposed to you know, it was shocking and all. So I thought, well, hell, I'm an improviser. And why not? It seems to be they're inviting the unexpected. So I came out. I'm beautiful. I was very beautiful at that time. <laughs> strong, black, you know? Everything you put with strong and black in a European imagination, I was that. <laughs> so is that what they meant by grotesque? Because here you are, how can you have this person that looks this way actually just wants to be themselves with, with everybody else who is not perfect? I'm not perfect, but you know, that's what they were seeing. And they were very offended by it. Why are you, you can't dance with us. What do you mean I can't dance with you? This is who I am. That's what I'm saying to you, my brother. How do I deal with it? Deal with it. That's what I do. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah? Let's improvise. You come from where you come from, I come from where I come from, and let's make something. I came into it with no prejudice. Obviously, they did not. Um, well, I, so, sorry, I, I, I think uh, the, 
what I meant was you came in at a moment when uh, what was going on in adjacent to what you were doing was sort of surprising. Not that you so, were as a person. So what's wrong with being surprising? Nothing. So you're passing around the person who has no legs and no arms, and you're on the, ro on the floor. Pass them to me. Why not pass them to me? You know, where was, was there an unwritten law, rule about it? It was supposed to be crashed landing, radical, unexpected. It felt phony. It felt false. And it had no room for real inclusion. I don't want that to happen to our political conversation here. Understand? Now, you've got to get me right on this, right? Don't fall for that. Always question. Always, if there's a party line, you go there. Because if you're really badasses as you say you are, you are constantly adjusting. Do you hear me, my brother? You hear me? Yeah, I hear you. <laughs> please, please, please. Do you mind? So I don't have to, these old knees, I don't have to step down? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I hear you. Not a laugh line either. This is real. We had this moment, yeah? Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, hello. Hi. Thanks, Ben. I know him. He's really nice. Mm -hmm. um, now my question's all over the place. Um, but I want to <laughs> say the first thought that's on my mind, which is um, I wrote a couple days ago that sometimes um, white spaces are inaccessible even to white people. Whoa, whoa, whoa. I'm sorry. White spaces are, are what? Inaccessible even, even to, to white, white people. people. Mm -hmm. um, and I guess maybe that's a good start to my question. Um, I saw you first when I was about 12. Mm -hmm. um, my grandparents, I, I mean, I love to dance since I was a kid, so they always took me to dances. And um, I feel like something seamless happened in my brain, um, seeing all different kinds of bodies move. Um, and that's always just been a foundation for my existence. Um, but flash forward to my 27th year, and I had, I'm 28 now, but last year I had so many deaths um, this mm. character of death as this like <laughs> whoa there you go um, uh, so um, I was interested in some things you were saying with character being uh, death being a character um, in our work and um, I guess in some ways I've had to like um, kill myself metaphorically um, mm. in in some of my artistic communities and in some of the conversations that I'm having um, because maybe they're not existing in my brain that's been seen. I'm sorry, believe it or not, what? Um, because I feel like people maybe have not been existing in my brain of seeing bodies moving and different things. Um, and I guess... You're not coming from the movement world, is that what you're saying? I, I feel like I'm coming from the movement world uh -huh. um, into a world of ideas, into the world of hip-hop, into a world of um, people that question whether or not I belong um, in that moment. Um, and so I've had to do, or not even I had to do, I've just experienced some personal deaths. Um, and so I guess my question is, um, what has been your experience with artistic conversations that you're having with people that you're no longer directly communicating with? 
Um, uh, people I'm no longer communicating with, people who have passed away, um, or people who literally I don't see eye to eye anymore with. What do you mean? I the, think both. I think what I'm asking is, um, do you continue to speak to things that are no longer right in front of you? Um, do you continue to speak to ideas and to people and to things mm -hmm. that may or may not be directly receiving what you're offering? Well, you know, I, I was never convinced that anybody, even an audience of people, real people sitting on their butts, were really there. Mm. I think it was a real existential problem. Did I really think that communication was possible on that level? Um, that's why a lot of it was about seduction. Mm -hmm. It was trying to um, get over, to, to touch some part, which is their desire on some level. That's what I thought I was doing. Now, you know that Damien Hirst's work uh, with the shark? You know the name of it? Mm -hmm. Have you seen it? Mm -mm. Go out now and, and Google it and think about what I'm about to say. The name of that work, it's a big white shark in formaldehyde, giant. It was a scandal. It's called The Impossibility of Death in the Mind of the Living. Okay. Now think about that. Yeah. Is it impossible? Is death really impossible in the mind of the living? I think it is. Hmm. And he showed this most tangible thing and he named it this kind of outrageous name. I don't know if there's something that you're trying to get at right now. Now, one thing I, I what do you do? Are you a creator? Yeah, I, I'm a writer and a dancer. And um, a dancer? Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And both seamlessly. Uh -huh. Why? Um, well, writing, I'm obsessed. I can't stop. Um, I just write in my head, and then mm -hmm. I write it down, and then I feel the need to share it. Um, dancing. You, you do feel the need to share it. I feel the need to share it. Not always, but mm -hmm. usually um, I feel the need to share it. Um, and that way it's compulsive almost. Mm -hmm. um, and then dancing, I have a inju birth injury on my shoulder, Herb's palsy. And so I got put into dances therapy and then fell in love mm -hmm. with the world, be got into modern. Um, and now. Got into modern, you started where? Um, in high school, in public school, I had a no, modern... No, but I'm saying, when people program. say they got into modern, they started in ballet or tap or jazz or hip-hop, and then they got into modern. Yeah. Right. Um, I mean, I, my parents threw me in whatever dance classes were in the community, ballet, jazz, mm -hmm. whatever. Um, and it's a language that, you've, that works for you. That language never really worked for me. No, dance, though. Yes, dance is a language right, that works right, for right. me. Right, right, right. Because, you know, I feel like I... I I can almost feel what you're trying to do. You want to, you want to dance. Mm -hmm. There's something that my mind, my mouth will never satisfy. Yeah. And I wonder how brave you are. You know, I, you have to tell me. Brave in the sense that if that's real, what you're expressing to me, you're going to be on fire and you are going to be frightening to watch, if it's real. Because yeah. right now you're using words in a way that is, that is building something around you, you know? Mm -hmm. Now, how do you get, break through your own words? What are the actions that you're doing? What are the gestures that you're doing? What are you making, mm -hmm. right? And what will be your criteria of judging it, mm. if at all? So you've got some work to do. Yeah, I do. You know. 
That's a really great question for yeah. me. <laughs> but you are, uh, I, think, uh, I think you're brave. Yeah. I think you're brave. So uh, I want to see what the, fly, what the fire is going to be like. And if, it, if you are the person who I think you are, it will be a fire. It will be. I'll see you on the other side, my sister. Thank you. Yeah. 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 Okay, we have to close, close it down soon, but this is fun. I hope you're enjoying because I'm. Yeah. God knows what will happen next. Hey. <laughs> um, I'm Spark, and. Um, I'm sorry? My name is Spark. Really? It's my nickname. That's wonderful. Thank you. Hi, Spark. Hi. <laughs> um, I really loved your talk about history and the worry that um, the current millennial internet world can really um, divorce things from context and a kind of history that can be passed through the body. Please excuse me for any arrogance in that since I don't know all millennials. I am not a millennial. I'm actually born in 78. Oh! I slipped right in and I, I claim Gen X only because that's really where my teachers kind okay. of come from. Right. But I also, I often moonlight as a millennial, but I'm mm -hmm. not. Um, I'm really interested in that generation gap kind of obsessively. Maybe it's all made up, but there is kind of a difference between having grown up without the internet until like age 13 or 14. Anyway, right. my point is about being embodied. Um, being, being what now? Being in, in the body, in the in present the moment, body. like you and I are right now. Yeah. I really wanted to know how you, how you work with that in creating dance. Mm -hmm. um, what kind of like, assignments do you give your dancers or what kind of ways do you mm. try to break the, the kind of tangled up internet where everything is at once, but nobody's really paying attention to mm. the physical form? Um, well, first of all, I, I, this is one of the big questions right now about keeping a dance company. It's hard. Yeah. It's expensive. I'm getting older. I don't have the chutzpah as I used to. And then uh, my wonderful collaborator, Janet Wong, she keeps reminding me of what a gift that is, and it's worth everything we go through to have it. Because, she said, there's a repository of knowledge in those bodies and in this what we're doing. Now, that's one way. That's not the same thing as wanting to, as I used to think, I'm going to rock the whole world, you know? I did an audition once in Boston. Fifty women I improvised with, 50 of them, I, because I could, but I also wanted to, it wasn't enough just to look at their dancing. I wanted to sweat together. Fifty people, you know? That was how I used to do it. There's the, that's honest sweat, real sweat. Because you were improvising, you mean? Because I was improvising, and, and we were meeting. The yeah. two bodies were meeting yeah. at that moment, you know? And can you take my weight? I'll take your weight. Can we run? Can we roll? I don't know you. Can I trust you? I trust you implicitly. That's how you do it when you're young. Right. That's how you do it when the knees, you trust the knees and the lower back. I think there must be a way, and I made a w work recently over the, uh, with my company, a work that we showed at APAP, and... Um, I realize who I am. I don't remember movement well. And uh, you know, here I am making movement all the time and on them about learning it, and I don't learn it well, never have. But that's not what I claim to do. And it was intimate, it was very intimate. Um, I cut a fart, right? <laughs> cut more than one. You know, it happens when you get older, your gut, you know? It does, but I had to tell them about it. I had to let them know, this is who I am, 
And if I'm dancing with you, not dancing with a 25 or a 30 year old digestive system, you're dancing with a 65 year old, you know. So that level of intimacy already is saying, here I am. That's one way I do it. I don't do it every day anymore. I'm not generous enough and I don't have enough energy to do it every day. So it needs to be a time right now. We could rock and roll right down the floor, right now, right? No. <laughs> the hour's late and it would be showboating, but that's the, way, that's the way I used to do it. Right. Now it's all about how will I do it if I'm going to stay in this game. Do we dare call it a game or this religion? You know? Somewhere between the two. Pardon? Somewhere between the two. Are you a dancer? Extreme. Yeah. Does it feel like a sacred thing to you? Yeah, the more I, the more I experience the present moment with movement, yes. It's really, right. it's liberating. Well, then what's performance? You put your religion on display? It's what you said about kids. It's being willing to be seen. Really to be willing to be seen. But now why do you want to be seen? Because um, I'm here now with everybody, and oh, that's kind of I'm miraculous. Seeing, I'm seeing. I'm seeing. What's the difference? Do you think it's different? Yeah. I know it is. And you don't have to back off for it. No, no, no. I don't think I know enough yet. I haven't performed that much lately. Ah, well, you've got to perform more. Yeah, that's the point. And then yeah. you have to really think about what's going on with those eyes on you, you know? Yeah. Even just asking this question was my version of a performance. Just asking this question was my yeah. version of go up there because you don't know what you're going to say exactly. Yeah, yeah. I See know. what happens. I know. <laughs> well, my love, Miss Spark. <laughs> All right, let's take, we gotta like, gotta do some triage here now. Because, you know. I'll make this quick. Okay. See? See? I was just coming up to say thank you, but let's. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I don't I, I just wanted to ask you something Who really are you? quickly. Do I know you? My name's BJ Bullard. I'm a filmmaker. I teach at Antioch University. I thought we had met, maybe. You no? look familiar. I think it may yeah, have you been. You look familiar to me, too. <laughs> you know? Well, I wanted to ask you about Sevilla Fort because Sevilla is from Seattle. Wow. And I'm working on a short film. Is that the, did Alvin make a piece about her? Um, Jonathan um, Cage did. Cage wrote music. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course, of course. For Sevilla Fort. Yeah, there's, a, there's actually an Ailey piece with an, uh, not the same person. I made this make before. Yeah, yeah did you yeah. know Sevilla Fort? I did not know Sevilla Fort. I've read about her. Yeah. Yes. Mm -hmm. Well, I was just going to. Talk what about, about her? How wonderful she is. Um, how old is she? Uh, no, she's, she's in another world at the moment. I see, she left this um, world. But she was from Seattle, mm -hmm. so we'll, no, with all this talk about... Is she a black, she's a black woman? Yeah. And yeah. John Cage worked with her. And they were at Cornish College of yes. the Arts, and that's where they and met I, in the 1930s. You know, I think it is the same one that Alvin Ailey made the piece about. I it, believe so, because I mm -hmm. think she studied with him. But I'm just working on a film inspired by the idea that the Space Needle is a woman. A female dancer. The what is? What is? The Space Needle, the symbol, the icon of the <laughs> Northwest. So my thought was, oh, wouldn't it be interesting if Sevilla Fort could have been a model for one of the artists that mm -hmm. uh, created a shape? That's another story. But you know anyway, what? You know I want what? Thank you. This is a poignant way to end because those legends like that who were black people. Right now, I wish that I knew them better. In the world that I thought was the important world, that kind of, the quote, mm -hmm. hip downtown slash white avant-garde, I thought that that was the one that had the most food, and it had great food, but I didn't even really know how to relate to uh, black artists who were much older than I was. I see. 
and I, now I regret. I regret it. So don't you regret. Well, thank you so much for that. And, thank and you. I thank so you. appreciate the way you talk. Well, thank you. <laughs> and I can sometimes dance. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> thank you all very much. You're very kind. Thank, thank you, you very much. Thank you. <laughs> Such a gift. Thanks for streaming this episode of Speakers Forum from KUOW 94.9 Seattle. Bill T. Jones gave this UW Graduate School Jesse and John Dan's lecture on January 30th at the University of Washington's Kane Hall. Stay current with us by subscribing to our podcast. Tune in again soon.